This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsite owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Bonds. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. On today's show, first, we're going to chat a little bit about some big news from Ming Yang. Uh, they've released a 16 megawatt offshore turbine that they're going to hope is going to be in service in a couple of years. Uh, so we'll talk about some of the, I mean, the thing is gigantic and obviously now displaces the Halliadex and the Siemens Gamesa, uh, their top turbines as far as size. Uh, we'll talk at length about uh, gearboxes today, some uh, about gearbox failures, also an interesting wear debris monitoring system from Poseidon. We'll talk a little bit about what we can do to make uh, those gearbox maintenance uh, periods, you know, extend a little bit longer. And then in our third segment today, we're going to talk about hydrogen. Uh, Rosemary's got a ton of uh, stuff she wants to share, and we're going to chat through how green is blue hydrogen. Uh, we'll talk through Librix uh, hydrogen ladder and some interesting hot brick technology that could be used to store uh, energy, not really hydrogen related, but also just uh, energy storage related. Uh, before we get going, be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News. That's our weekly newsletter and podcast update. So if you want to stay abreast of everything wind energy, definitely sign up for that. You'll find it in the show notes here in YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And obviously our co-host uh, Rosemary has a great YouTube channel, so you'll find links to that there as well. Um, so let's get going. Uh, Rosemary, I'll kick this to you. So Ming Yang has a 16 megawatt uh, offshore turbine, the MYSE 160-242. So they're going to, it will sweep a 242 meteor um, area. That's the, the rotor diameter, 118 meter long blades. And uh, that's going to be a 46,000 square meter swept area. So, Rosemary, what are some of the challenges as these continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger? Is there ever going to be a cap on on turbine size? <laughs> it's so funny because that's like the question that everyone's been talking about, you know, forever as far as, far as I can tell. I know uh, at, when I was working at LM, every oh, if someone had a 10-year or a 25-year working anniversary, we'd all have cake in the canteen. And it was like followed the same pattern every time. They'd give a speech and they'd say, when I started, wind turbine blades were, you know, 12 meters long or whatever, something like that. And we all wondered how long they could get. And we were pretty sure 20 meters was the limit. You know, everyone had this story like that from when they, they started. And I mean, I started a lot more recently. And I guess for me, I think it was in the 80s, the longest blade in the world. And people were like, could it get above 100 meters? I mean, I guess in theory it could, but would you ever? And it's kind of funny because, of course, there's no, no, hard limit i mean i don't think that you could realistically make a you know kilometer long blade um but i bet if there was like a real incentive to 
you probably could. But the thing is that, you know, as you scale something up, the, the actual structural considerations are not in favor of getting bigger and bigger because you double the, well, you know, the power increases with the square of the length, but then the mass of the materials increases with like the cube because it's three dimensional. So the blades of a longer or a bigger wind turbine are more expensive for the amount of energy you get, but it's all the other savings. Um, in other parts of the turbine. So you'll see, you know, obviously for offshore, it's really expensive to run those cables out to the turbine and it doesn't matter so much if it's a cable for a 10 megawatt turbine or for a a 16 megawatt cable. And so, yeah, basically it's just economics. And um, at some point, (laughs) at some point, I mean, the, the optimization is constantly changing. That's why the turbines are getting bigger. At the moment, the size of turbines, that's the optimal size. And then when that changes, then you get a bigger turbine. So yeah, I don't, I've, I've got no answer to when it will stop. I think that <laughs> <laughs> any guess you make is just definitely going to be proven wrong. So yeah, another, another bigger one. That's all I can say. <laughs> that's fair. Well, I, I remember hearing back in the day, and this, I don't know if this is true or not, that Godzilla or no, it was King Kong. Like King Kong couldn't have existed because if, if an ape was that big that his bones like couldn't support his weight, essentially. I don't know if that was correct, but I think, I feel like I read that. I mean, could that be kind of what you're talking about to an extent? Like at some point, might the nacelle and the blades up, up top just be too much for a reasonable size tower? Yeah. It just costs, it just costs more. Right. It, it is like the dinosaur experiment where dinosaurs got to a certain stage and they couldn't get any bigger because their structure couldn't handle it. So they stopped. Oh, so I was right. That's growing. Good. It's good. It's yeah. Good. And that, that's the same thing's going to happen in what well, it's already happened in airplanes, so to speak. And it, it's going to happen in wind turbines. The question is, at what point does it become painful? And until you push engineers and materials to the point that becomes painful, they're going to continue, continue to make them bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, are we getting close to that number now? I think we are. I think my gut tells me 200 meters is about, you know, when you talk about ship sizes and things like that, 200 meters seems like pretty on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. That was my other question is the support, the support stuff, right? If you don't have a crane right. big enough that can, you know, has a ship big enough to support the crane when you're way offshore, then that's might be your bottleneck. Right. And it's going to be cheaper to, to make many more smaller ones than one large one. That, that economics will cross here pretty soon. So moving on to gearboxes, and this is obviously the same same topic here. So the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, the NREL, um, has done some interesting research on gearbox failures. And they're saying basically that a lot of hardworking components, just like these, don't quite make it to their entire 20-year lifespan. And gearboxes specifically often suffer from what they call white etch, uh, which is some cracking in the roller uh, bearings inside the uh, inside the gearbox. Um, Alan, what stuck out to you as far as this this article about gearboxes and some of the failure modes? Well, the the failure modes were interesting because they didn't really have a handle on what was causing it. And one of the first engineering tasks you need to do is be able to recreate and figure out what the source of the of the issue is. And so, uh, what they ended up doing was making a little test set essentially that could, in theory, recreate these these times kinds of uh, fractures in the bearings. And one of the interesting things that came out of it was the different kinds of lubricants that are used uh, sometimes allow the two interfacing surfaces that are t- should be rolling against one another to slip and to slide. And in that sliding effort, you can create these stress cracks. 
But and the, if you can imagine, it's like in an automobile. Uh, if if I'm going to go down and, and put new oil in my engine, I have a variety of choices. And they're not all the same. They're close to the same, but they're, and the additives will change. And with a synthetic or it's real oil pumped out of the ground will change also. So uh, you, you don't think about that as having an effect on the performance of the mechanical system. But as they're finding in the, in the research that they're doing, those particular lubricants have a big influence on where the cracks develop. And I, I wouldn't have picked that as the place of uh, the source of the issue. So it's really fascinating that as they delve deeper and deeper and deeper into this thing, it's not really the bearings themselves. It's the, it's all the, the, the things we use, the fluids we use to keep them operating that are maybe inducing failures. That that's an interesting feature, and, and Rose, Rosemary is more the mechanical person. I'm an electrical person, but Rosemary, did you did you pick that that same sort of thing out of out of the discussion? When you think about a gearbox and bearings, and you think, I mean, these are um, things that we've been using for um, at least hundreds of years, right? In um, in other applications, so you might wonder why <laughs> why is this such a big deal for wind <laughs> turbines? And I think it's it's like anything that you you put in a wind turbine has this extreme operating environment that's really different to to what it had in its you know previous life and you know where you get your um the lifetime data for a bearing or whatever it's based on different operating environment and it's not going to apply to you know your thing that you're putting in a wind turbine and i saw that with everything that i put in um in the blade for the heating systems i was always taking things off the shelf as much as possible and people think, well, why do we need to test this? You know, it's got a, it's got a warranty. It's got a design lifetime, but you know, you, you put it in a wind turbine with all these vibrations, constant fatigue, just all sorts of fatigue in different frequencies. So things, things break and it has taken some time to kind of figure that out for wind. And then the second thing that's different is just so how hard it is to replace. You know, you've got your gearbox in your car and if you stuff up and choose the wrong, the wrong lube. I mean, the consequence is that you take it to a shop and get it replaced. And that, that feels painful. You don't want to pay for that, but compare that to, <laughs> to getting a crane out to, you know, lift the top off your cell and drag the whole, the whole gearbox out of a wind turbine. I mean, you can see that it's going to be really appealing for, um, a wind turbine operator to get some heads up that something might be wrong and, you know, give them a chance to do some preventative maintenance, um, because the consequence is so high. So. Yeah, I think that's the that's the main difference with the wind turbine gearboxes. Well, is this another one of those items that's falling into an arbitrary 20-year lifespan? Like 20 years is a really round number. Like it just like when we say, oh, it should be a hundred or a hundred years or ten years or twenty years, they're all just round arbitrary numbers. Like is this is is it arbitrary? Is that why we're not meeting any of these 20-year lifespans? I mean, could you really design a blade or this or that to make it 20 years or is it just hope is it just wishful thinking some components you can design to whatever life you like and some components you can't so um bearings are one of the things where they are legitimately struggling to get the the lifetime as long as they'd like but in general you want the life as long as possible that um you know when you're calcula- calculating the levelized cost of energy you're dividing by the you know the number of years of lifetime so the bigger that number then the cheaper your energy is and the easier to get financing the more profit you're going to make so definitely we see a trend towards increasing lifetimes and for a blade or a tower you can get there by just adding more material to you know get the extra life the extra fatigue strength 
But for some components, and I understand that gearbox and, and gearboxes and bearings are um, still at the stage where, like, actually they're, they're trying their hardest <laughs> to make them last as long as they can. It's not a matter of, you know, oh, we could design a 50-year gearbox if we wanted to. I don't think anyone can do that. Alan, is it going to take, like, new higher tech materials, like harder alloys, or is it just... Is, is there something else that maybe we're missing? I think the, the issue right now is that the, the loads and the forces are growing faster than the engineers can keep up with the, the failure mode. So as we push into 12, 13, 15, 16, 20 megawatt machines, that means you're talking about more mass, more loads, more forces, uh, uh, that you're getting to the point of you're going to get different kind of failure modes in the pairings that you may have had on the one megawatt machine. And, and so in the, in the, sort of the maintenance side, maintenance is always playing catch up to the design engineers. The design engineers put out this product and off it goes and kind of look to the next machine. That's what, that's what their job is involves. And, but the, it's the technicians that have to live with the results of that. And the technicians find out five, six, seven, eight years later that that initial concept, that initial uh, analysis may not prove out just, just because. And, and the engineers, as you push higher and higher, the same thing goes on with blades. As you keep pushing higher and higher and higher, you're getting to some places you've never been. And so you're automatically going to have failure modes you never thought of. Guaranteed. And, and airplanes, we see it on uh, wind turbines. We're going to see it. I guess the question is, you know, at what point do the economics get so bad that you start taking steps back? Like you could make a 20 megawatt machine, but you really can't design bearings for it. So there may be limitations like the bearings where we just don't do it. We just say, all right, 12 is a really good number for us. And 12 megawatts is a sweet spot. We're going to stay there for a while because wind turbines haven't stayed anywhere long enough to really prove out a lifespan. We'd be just continually getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, and that's a good segue into um, one of the companies that I found doing research for this, which is Poseidon Systems. They have a, a number of different sensors for gearboxes. One of them is their Trident Wear Debris Monitor. Uh, and they are basically looking for metallic debris. So whether it's, and they can classify it, whether it's ferrous or non-ferrous. And I guess that can give operators an idea of where that, um, those little flecks of metal are coming from. I mean, is that sort of how something like that would work? I do understand it's, you know, it's trying to be an early warning system for them. So they know, uh, you know, where we've detected something strange and you better, you better get in there and do some maintenance before, you know, one of your bearings just shatters or, or whatever. That's my, my interpretation of it. So, um, I think that there's also other, other ways of, um, doing, um, predictive maintenance where, you know, they're watching for the, the vibrational frequency and they can, you know, pick out, oh, one of your bearings is, um, <laughs> you know, is cracked or is rounded or whatever. And, um, yeah, if you're looking at the vibrations, then you can get in there and replace that before it gets to the point where the whole thing is just stuffed and you've got to, um, totally remove it. So I'm assuming it's the same kind of principle of you know looking for some some early tell that something bad is about to happen yeah i mean alan they do a lot of this stuff on aircraft um yeah where you have an idea of hey we need to replace this well before it has a chance right. to fail um right. and i'm sure a lot of that's already going on with wind turbines but um i mean is, is that maybe the best that we can hope for in the future like if something like you said can't be designed to withstand 20 years of rigors like hey let's just do they even then maybe design components to be a little more easily replaced or more, more often replaced? Like, hey, let's not spend X amount of dollars trying to make this bulletproof and we know it can't be. Maybe let's go a little cheaper and just we'll, we'll replace that gear every five years instead of trying to make it so expensive that it, it can make it eight. 
Would that would that be a reasonable solution? It, it's reasonable on aircraft because aircraft tend to be in places where you can repair them. They're on the ground. They're usually in a hangar and it's dry. And so making those swap outs does happen and it's pretty regular. On a wind turbine, you really can't do that very easily. And that's the big difference. On a jet engine, I'll give you an example on jet engines and helicopter engines for that matter, is that they have monitoring systems, vibration monitoring systems. So they're constantly looking at the acoustic signature of the motor to make sure everything is working the way it should. And if you see something odd happen, the the actual, the, the engine has a data system and it, it'll transmit data out after a, f- a flight to the manufacturer that says, hey, this particular engine is, is, is unusual. Somebody needs to be looking at this thing. And they also create fleet data from that. So the uh, a Pratt & Whitney will be able to see the whole fleet of airplane or su- substantial part of them to see how the whole things are performing and where you may have unique situations because of the operating environment. That's That's been going on in aerospace for poof, 20 years at least. Uh, and the wind turbine side, you don't see that as much, weirdly to say. I don't think the OEMs are necessarily always getting data back. And it, it, it's getting to the point where the size of the wind turbines are getting so massive and you're pushing the limits of materials that as an OEM – Part of the agreement on which I'm going to sell you this wind turbine is I get to have the data back. I get to see how my wind turbine is performing because I need to know what is coming out of the factory is actually going to do what we, th- we say it's going to do. And that's the only way you're going to know is to, is to accumulate data. Yeah. So I think that we see a trend now towards, because uh, you, you're absolutely spot on when you say how hard it is to get the, the, the data once you've sold a turbine. And so a lot of uh, manufacturers are now purposely getting into service so that they can get that data like maybe the service part of the business isn't super profitable on its own but the data that they get is so valuable that they they want it anyway so i i think it's going to be a big big thing in the future and we do see the industry changing as it learns the operating environment because you know if you think about it you're trying to test for a 20, 30 year lifetime, but you got to accelerate that, right? And do it in six months or um, less than a, a year anyway. And some things are easier to test a lifetime than others. So, you know, they have a pretty good method for blade structures. It's not perfect, but you know, they can, they can excite it, wobble it, get the right number of, of movements um, that they would see in a lifetime and test it that way. But something like a, uh, a bearing, you know, if you're actually getting enough revolutions, then either you've got to make them so fast that it's not, they're going to heat up in a way that they wouldn't in operation. Same, anything that's got gravity loading, it's incredibly hard to accelerate that in a realistic way. So some of it just, you need actual calendar years to test an actual calendar year for some things. And, you know, we see wind turbines don't park anymore the way that they used to. They're mostly idle. And that I believe that that's mainly because that's a lot easier on the bearings to um, not sit there in the one location because that gives them flat spots. So I think we'll see some improvements just the longer the industry has been been around with a lot of turbines around. All right. So moving on into hydrogen. Um, so Axiona is planning to build a floating wind and solar hydrogen complex. So the Spanish developer has got some government funding and it's going to be called the Ocean H2. Um, so Rosemary, you're our uh, green or blue or whatever colored of the day sort of uh, hydrogen expert. Um, how excited are you about this uh, floating <laughs> hybrid farm is this i mean 
This is your dream. Uh, close to a, a zero excited, I would say. Um, <laughs> okay, okay. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, it's always cool to see like you know ambitious things, but I don't, I don't understand offshore hydrogen, and I don't understand offshore solar. I understand offshore wind because you go offshore, the wind resource gets much better, so there's um, a reason to be there. And you pay the price for it in terms of really uh, expensive installation and expensive maintenance. And for any new technology that you're developing in the early days, you're going to be out there a lot figuring out why it's not working the way that you thought it was going to, right? So I just, I mean, for solar, that's, that's quite mature. So maybe they're ready to go offshore, but why? I mean, uh, they say uh, I was reading a bit into this because I actually didn't even know that offshore um, solar was a thing until I <laughs> until I saw this article. And you know, okay, so some countries are filling up their onshore opportunities for solar. They want to go offshore. I just can't imagine that it's worth the the headache. But um, okay, that's a thing. But then hydrogen. I mean, it's really electrolyzer technology isn't brand new, but it is brand new that we're going to be using them in this in this way with a wind turbine. Why aren't we doing it onshore first to figure out if this is a good idea and even to see if the markets are there um, to, you know, make their business case make sense? I just think that we're so far uh, uh, jumping the gun by so far to put, um, yeah, offshore hydrogen wind turbine hybrids. And then secondly, to add solar into it, I just think that this is going to be so much more complicated than it needs to be. Um, so, yeah, that's <laughs> that's my opinion on, on that one. Rosemary, you think it's the effect of being in international waters and taxation that essentially <laughs> there is no governmental control over it? And in a sense, I mean, you, you were really, really creating energy from the sea, so to speak. And if you turn it into hydrogen, you have an open market to walk into any place that the, the highest selling market and just basically drive a ship to wherever they're going to pay you the most for it. Is that, it sounds like that's what this is driving towards, that it's more economic than engineering related. Sailing towards. That's what this is sailing towards. <laughs> sailing, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that might be true. And there is also, so I, I shouldn't be so dismissive of the wind hydrogen combo because there are some kind of synergies for putting it both offshore because you don't need then to put a big subsea cable in. You can just get ships to go, you know, or um, or a pipeline. So there's something there. It's not just a matter of complicating it for no reason. And maybe you're 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 right. That's you know that sounds plausible. Um, but I just don't see why you need to do that now. Get your technology working. Um, I I just in the off offshore wind industry anything that you can do onshore you do it onshore you know always it's just it the cost just goes through the through the roof when you um it, every everything you add to it adds maintenance cost um and you know times it by 10 because it's offshore it's just i i don't understand it and then i did wonder with this with this project if it's more for the headline you know, generating um, concept, you know, get all of the cool podcasters to to talk about it because, <laughs> because it's so crazy. <laughs> but that's probably the most, um, I don't know, the, the, <laughs> the most sensible interpretation that I can, <laughs> I can make of this project. Well, it says that the, the, the total cost of the project is 7.25 million, so, or 6 million euros. 
which doesn't seem very big. Either it's a really tiny experimental thing or it's, I don't know, they're <laughs> getting it manufactured by <laughs> Ikea or something. I don't know. But right. maybe it's not very big. It may be if the wind turbine was going to be installed anyway, maybe the incremental cost to put an electrolyzer and a solar panel next to it is about $7 million. That That sounds about right to me. That's what I would be asking for if you wanted me to take an existing wind turbine and put a solar panel and a... Um, an electrolyzer <laughs> offshore. I think, I think yeah, I could get something done with that much money. But um, yeah. <laughs> well, I think there's going to be fewer problems of Elon Musk getting to Mars than this thing going together. There's just fewer <laughs> problems to solve because the number of problems you have to solve to get to Mars is just like mass, right? You just you just build something bigger. And this thing, you got so many moving parts. You got wind, you got solar, you got electrolyzers, you got a ship involved. There's just so many moving pieces from an engineering standpoint. You have each one of those problems is very difficult to solve and you stack them all together at the same time and try to make trying to make a, a nickel on the project that's that's really hard and it's floating wind right so that yeah. also is is not mature yet i mean i think it's got potential but um yeah uh, yeah it to does. solve all those problems at once uh, i feel sorry for the project manager and he's trying to you know bring that together on a schedule it's it's going to be a tough job. All right. So moving on, um, there's a interesting graphic called the Clean Hydrogen Ladder by Michael Leibrick. And as he describes it, it's his attempt, quote, to put use cases for clean hydrogen to some sort of merit order. So at the top, uh, well, there's unavoidable. These are things like fertilizer, hydrogenation, methanol, hydrocracking. Um, and at the bottom of the ladder are things that are uncompetitive, like metro trains and buses, urban delivery, two and three wheelers, um, power system balancing. And then somewhere in the middle, there are things like long haul, medium haul, short haul aviation, ferries, trucks and coaches, stuff like that. Um, so, Rosemary, w- what is the story of this ladder? What is it mostly trying to convey? Yeah, so, I, I mean, I really love love this ladder because I think it's just such a really um, clever way to communicate hydrogen because, I mean, if you read the article, you can see a bit further down, it's got this graphic of um, a Swiss army knife with, you know, about a thousand different attachments. And it's like, yeah, in theory, you could carry this knife around with you and do everything that you, you know, wanted to do with it. But in reality, it's never, <laughs> it's not the best tool for many, many jobs. So you wouldn't. And people talk about hydrogen a bit like that. You're like, oh, it could do, it could do anything. Um, and they're right that it, it could do anything, but it, it won't because, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's alternatives that make more sense. So, um, in this ladder, it's been done in a really rigorous way, um, where, you know, you take every single thing that people talk about hydrogen being able to do and then look at, what else could we do it with instead? And it, does that make a lot more sense? So, yeah, like you said, on the top, you've got things that hydrogen is already doing. Um, you know, we already have uh, a lot of hydrogen getting made. It's all very, very dirty. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so that includes especially fertilizer. Um, it's probably the main largest one. And then at the bottom, you see of the least likely technologies, you've got fuel cell passenger cars and power system balancing, which I think is the things that people – um, maybe non-engineers think are the main things that hydrogen is going to do. So to see them right at the bottom is really interesting. Well, the, I think this is an economic ladder. That's the way I looked at it. Like it's it's determining whether the it's a, a cost-related issue. It's not an engineering challenge issue so much as can you economically make this work versus 
all the other alternatives. And I, I think as, as a bigger picture on the engineering side is that the economics kind of get tossed by the wayside because engineers don't tend to think about the money part of it too much. If it's cool, I'm going to buy the Tesla, whether it is the most economical way to get me around town or not, seems to, get, to be secondary to the discussion. But ultimately, those the economy is going to be the bigger driver in the financing of these things. And things that are economical are going to pick up hydrogen uh, engineering pieces that won't like if making a lawnmower out of run on hydrogen doesn't make any sense at all. They're not, it's just not going to happen. And I think that's the way these get filtered out over time is that if you can make money on it, they're going to stay. If you can't, it's going to go away and hydrogen is going to find its sweet spot at some point, particularly in these large industrial things. I think that is the sweet spot for hydrogen right now is large industrial places, which need hydrogen fertilizer being one of those is where if you had a, a wind turbine solar plant and you an electrolyzer and you're creating that hydrogen right next door and it makes your operations more economical, slam dunk, all the bean counters are going to say, go ahead and do it. But if you're talking about generating hydrogen from natural gas and shipping it across the country, makes no economic sense, won't happen. Rosemary, I want to use that as sort of a transition into some of these different methods of creating hydrogen. So a couple articles have come out a little bit critical of blue hydrogen can you tell us, as I made a little joke earlier, what are the different colors, quote unquote, of hydrogen for those who aren't as, as savvy as, as you are? Yeah. I mean, there's no definitive word, actually. I keep on seeing people come up with different um, different colors for different things. But the way that, I mean, some of them are, are definitely um, agreed upon. So green hydrogen is made from electricity, um, from renewable sources, although there's no color for hydrogen made from non-renewable electricity. Um, so, you know, feel free to make up your own color. Brown. Um, I and say brown. <laughs> dirtiest color. No, bra right. Brown That's hydrogen's what, uh, from um, brown coal. Um, dang uh, it. All right. Of, of brown coal. So that one's taken. Um, yeah. Um, and then blue hydrogen is from um, steam, steam methane reformer to make hydrogen, and then you put carbon capture on it. But it's usually used for just any kind of fossil fuel hydrogen that has carbon capture added to it. Um, and that's been proposed as, uh, you, you know, a second pathway to decarbonization. And so I think I'll say a, a little bit about why so many engineers are so passionate about hydrogen and this hydrogen ladder, including me, um, and about the economics. Cause it's not, it's not just like the, the cost of it. That's the issue. It's, it's how fast we can get to decarbonization in general, right? And hydrogen, it converts, if you use electricity to make hydrogen and then back to electricity again, which is what you're doing if you're using it to balance a, a power grid or in a passenger car, because a, a hydrogen fuel cell car is um, an electric car, um, it's really inefficient. You know, you get one third of the electricity back that you put into it. So you can imagine if you scale that up and you have like lots of power system balancing, lots of hydrogen fuel cell passenger cars, you need three times as many wind turbines or solar panels um, as you would need if you were able to just use that electricity directly or from a battery. So, you know, we can expand our solar and wind industry a lot, but not infinitely. Three times as many is is a big deal. And there's other things that we could be doing decarbonizing with that green electricity. 
So that's why <laughs> a lot of engineers get really passionate about the economics of it um, because, you know, it has it, it's a handbrake on our energy transition. If we start using hydrogen willy-nilly, then, um, you know, we're, we're missing out on opportunities to do something else with it. So then enter blue hydrogen, which is a separate pathway. It legitimately is a separate pathway to, um, you know, rolling out hydrogen without cannibalizing, um, you know, green renewable electricity in general. So it sounds really nice. You've got your fossil fuel hydrogen manufacturing, which is the way that it's it's done. 98% of the hydrogen that's made today is from um, fossil fuel source with no carbon capture. Add carbon capture. Now you can call it clean hydrogen. And um, it's not taking renewable electricity that would have done something else. And we can use it to expand all of these amazing things and a Swiss army knife of hydrogen. It's perfect. And so then comes along this study, um, which is the first peer-reviewed one that's rigorously looked at the whole the whole emissions chain of um, blue hydrogen, and found, hey, it's not not so um, appealing as it sounds. And you know, I think calling it clean hydrogen is is a real misnomer. So, what what, what was misleading about that idea that blue hydrogen is just like super duper clean? Like, where does it go wrong? Yeah, so it sounds really simple. Um, you just, you know, shove carbon capture onto um, the steam methane reformer and suck out all the carbon. But in reality, I mean, you, you can capture as much carbon as you want, basically, but the economics kind of set a limit. Um, it's hard to go much above 90% um, capture for just the steam methane part of it and then for there's a you also need heat and pressure which is usually comes from gas as well and that the um, emissions are much lower concentration out the flue gases so that's harder to capture so this report included um not just that part of it but also the upstream emissions so you know in the um natural gas extraction and transporting there's a lot of losses there's leakage um, and this this report in their main baseline scenario assumed 3.5% leakage of that methane, which is on the high side, but they did also do a, um, a sensitivity analysis right down to kind of like the lowest estimates of about 1.5% and they still get roughly the same, same conclusion. Um, yeah, so they included all of that and then the fact that you need a lot more gas to make um, hydrogen than to get energy from hydrogen than if you just burn that gas directly. You know, you, um, if you wanted, you know, a certain amount of energy, you burn, you can burn gas to make the heat, to make the electricity, or you can use, you know, like three times as much and um, get it from hydrogen via hydrogen. So then you're multiplying all of the upstream emissions and you get to the point where actually blue hydrogen for the same amount of electricity out blue hydrogen has more co2 emissions than just burning the gas directly so as a transition fuel you're you're not actually making any improvement on your um your emissions outcomes so you know can we can we call it clean when it's dirtier than what we're replacing and can you call it a transition when it's a step away from our carbon um emission targets it's you know that's the that's the real interesting thing about this this study it's like does blue hydrogen actually do any of the things that we've been told that it's going to do hmm. that actually reminds me a little bit of the uh ethanol discussion here in the u.s from 20 years ago 
Like they government subsidized uh, ethanol from corn quite a bit. It was added to gasoline and like a 85% gasoline, 15% ethanol mix. But when you started to really break down the economics of it, it didn't seem like it made a lot of sense, um, both from the, the cost cost benefit and also just the amount of trucking and all that other stuff. It seemed like it was contributing more. And I don't have those numbers, but I remember just remember that conversation. Um, Alan, I mean, is, does, is that a decent analogy or my way off? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good analogy. And I, I think I look at it a, a little bit differently than Rosemary in this particular case. Uh, there's a lot of technologies that may not be ideal. I think from a, if you're talking about the world and in an industrial economy and uh, trying to get to a cleaner environment, one of those transitions you're going to have to make in all, all these countries is you need to get economic development up. You need to get the economies growing faster. You need to bring every, essentially everybody out of poverty into some, what I would term, sort of quasi-middle-class sort of status, at least. That's your fastest way to bring down emissions, is that once we get uh, society on some least moderate basis, then we can attack these other problems. But if we don't attack the sort of the poverty problem first, we're never we're going to have a much di- more difficult time to getting to a uh, uh, really a carbon neutral, carbon uh, reduced society. So in the transition, I think we have to kind of suck it up a little bit. And I think one of the one of the keys that has happened recently is uh, like in the United States and the Paris Accords, one of the things that happened with the Paris Accords, everybody went off and there's all this clapping and cheering and stuff that has happened. But the United States is the one who actually reduced emissions. And we did it in, a, in, a, in an unnatural way or in a way that wouldn't have been approved by the Paris Accords, so to speak, or wouldn't have been looked upon kindly. And But when we made that sort of natural gas um, transition, we did reduce the amount of emissions. That's not going to last forever. But did it help stabilize the economy? In some parts that it did. And I think then the United States can do those sort of next generation things in terms of energy development. So I'm willing to to suffer a little while to to bring up the world economy to then really push down the carbon emissions because we'll be at a better place to go do it. So it's it's sort of let's get to the economies working first, then let's attack carbon. They both need to be solved. It's a question of which do you do first and how do you get to the end result for both of them sooner. I'm on. I'm on board with that, and I'm also on board with, uh, you know, the the idea that green hydrogen is is going to be really. Um, it's going to take some time to to scale up to the point that it needs to, and so we can. This is, you know, it is a legitimate second pathway. Doesn't look like it's super. Um, it's it's not a large step or maybe any step towards decarbonization, but it is a step towards getting these, you know, industries swapped over to hydrogen. So I don't have so much of a problem if it sticks to applications that are going to make sense for hydrogen in the long term. And um, I would really love to see it done, you know, within a, a framework that made sense as well, because at the moment it is really similar to that ethanol thing where it's the government saying, you know, put ethanol in in fuel or the government saying, Blue hydrogen is the is the go. Um, I would much rather see it done with a carbon tax. You know, like it's a. I wish that you people in countries like ours are never going to you know see fulfilled, but that would be the way to do it. You know, then you can sensibly choose the um, decarbonisation pathway that has the the least economic pain. So I think that that <laughs> that's the best way to you know get sensible economic outcomes. Um, but I'd also don't believe it'll ever happen in Australia. So. 
Yeah, I don't know if the economics of that really work out. I think that's the reason why the United States has a big problem with carbon taxes is that economically, we're not sure that's the best answer to get to the final solution. And and that's the debate. Do you uh, artificially skew the marketplace so much that you force decisions, you force engineering to go in a particular way? And, and we, we saw that during the last economic collapse in 2008 with, with the government taking over General Motors, essentially, and telling them they're going to be an electric vehicle. That vehicle went absolutely nowhere. Unfortunately, went absolutely nowhere. And it was, it was not the right thing at the right time. And those sort of edicted government mandated engineering bits never seemed to, to get to, to the better part. Tesla was off there making cars and, the, and they didn't get wrapped up in that. They're going to be the winner. GM is not going to necessarily be the winner in that. And the government didn't really help it. So in some cases, you know, I think society in general, people like us that say, hey, cleaner is better, we're going to be making the decisions. And and that's probably a better way to, and a faster way to get to the ideal um, than letting the governments force it on us. So last story for today, this one's in Rosemary's Neck of the Woods. Uh, and this is just sort of that's, that conversation that's going to be happening in, in, in an increasing amount is of people who've done, um, you know, work in uh, fossil fuel industries their whole life as they see those industries start to hit their sunset. So um, this interesting story out of Australia about the Hunter Valley, which is uh, supported by coal, uh, they're starting to see their end and starting to talk about what's next for our children and uh, grandchildren in this in this area. And one of the interesting technologies that's popping up in that area is uh, MGA Thermal. They have these sort of alloy uh, bricks that are made of various metals that essentially they can heat up if they have extra energy from the grid, whether it's heat or uh, extra electricity. They can heat these bricks up, stores that energy as heat, and then they can use it to either release that later as steam or to power some sort of industrial process using the heat. Um, Rosemary, I mean, is this just a conversation that we're going to continue to have where older generations are seeing their line of work, like, like they said, fade into the sunset? in favor of new technologies and how are these people going to get uh, sort of moved on and their next of kin on board with some of these, these new, um, these new facilities that'll be built. Yeah. So I don't know if I've mentioned it on this podcast before, but um, I have been noticing as I, I climb turbines um, every now and then with technicians and I meet some interesting people there and I'm always asking them about how do they get into that line of work. And one time when I was climbing in New Brunswick, um, I, I believe that that was traditionally a really strong mining area. And I, I climbed with this guy. He's like, I was a coal miner. My dad was a coal miner. My granddad was a coal miner. Gee, it's really nice to be, you know, above the ground um, as a wind turbine technician. I, I love this job, and so you know that's an area where they've um, they've been able to at least start to make that transition away from coal mining jobs and into clean energy. And also, it highlighted for me that I mean, it's not like magical um, skills that are needed in the um, in clean energy. It's really similar similar things to what are needed in mining and, you know, coal power plant. So my most recent GWO training, there was a guy who was an um, apprentice electrician who uh, wanted to work on wind turbines to get away from ridiculous inner city housing prices. There was 
um, a guy who used to repair aircraft who <laughs> was now wanting to repair wind turbine blades because, you know, COVID shut down, um, has, you know, grounded a lot of aeroplanes. All sorts of tradespeople from all sorts of backgrounds are getting jobs in, in wind. And then this company is another example of, um, you know, they're, they're, they're taking really normal kind of skill sets. Um, they've got this cool technology with cool materials technology. So it is pretty high tech, but you know, they've got these hot, hot bricks that they want to heat up. It's not the only kind of thermal energy, um, storage that we see. But what I really liked about their, um, system is, you know, you can do it anywhere and you can even retrofit, um, a coal power plant that's been, um, you know, decommissioned. You can put these, hot bricks in there and use the the turbine from the coal power plant to get your um to make electricity from it. So it's you know it's from a university in this traditional coal area where they are thinking about the the future and what else that we could do because you know the writings on the wall for Australian coal mining at least you know 95% of it is exported to countries that have um zero emissions targets. So you know like it doesn't matter what our domestic policies are things are going to change. And so I was just really excited to see. I know there's a ton more. It's not just this one project. There's so many things happening in this region of people who are, you know, really thinking ahead, what are what are the jobs going to be? What are the opportunities going to be? And for me, I think these traditional um, coal areas are a really good place to put in, you know, some go back to manufacturing. These areas they used to used to have really cheap electricity, used to manufacture a lot of steel, a lot of aluminium, and then that dropped away as electricity prices rose in Australia. But, you know, there's there's a huge opportunity in the future for renewables to bring, you know, clean and cheap electricity, get those industries back. I, I think we're starting to see people realise energy transition is an opportunity even for the communities that you might think are going to suffer from it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the show, whether you listen on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube, and check out the show notes where you'll find Rosemary's awesome YouTube channel, as well as Uptime Tech News, our weekly update for all things wind energy, technology, stocks, business, what have you. So we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. Maximize the time efficiency of your techs and prevent future lightning damage by installing our Strike Tape LPS upgrade the next time your crews are going up on ropes. Learn more in today's show notes or visit us on the web at weatherguardwind.com.